Hey, this is Eric, and you're listening to the Story Church Podcast. Our podcast features audio from Sunday mornings at Story Church in Peru, Indiana, a community on the mission of connecting people's story to God's story. If you'd like to connect with us further, check out storyperu.com. Our hope is that today's episode helps you take your next step on your faith journey. So we're taking another stab at this conversation today about how we can be wise in our use of technology. And uh, we're taking our cue from this verse that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus long before there were smart devices or electricity or any of that good stuff. Uh, But the principle is still true for us today. He instructed these early Jesus followers to be careful in how we live. So be careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And when Paul said the days are evil, he didn't mean like spooky Halloween evil. Uh, but another way that you could actually translate that is to say that time's not for us. Time's working against us, that uh, we don't have an unlimited supply of time and nothing can dominate our time like these digital platforms as we all have probably experienced at some point along the way. So we're going uh, and jumping into this conversation to give you what I'm calling just like a theology of technology, which sounds really cool and kind of rhymes, but, but basically to have a perspective on like how do we intentionally use technology in a way that, that helps our faith grow? And how do we leverage these platforms, which many of us are on, most of us are on, how do we leverage them in a way that looks like love, looks like this thing that we're called to live out? And that's really what we're gonna talk about as we continue on today. But I think that idea of digital Babylon is really a helpful handle on many of our experience as it relates to faith and technology. Because uh, if you know the story of the people of God, there was this moment where God's people were exiled into Babylon. They, were, they found themselves in an unfamiliar culture that was opposed to some of their values and didn't practice many of the things that they practiced. And so what the Barna Group and David Kinnaman, their president, is essentially saying is in this cultural moment here in America right now in 2022, in a way, we're kind of our own cultural exiles, those of us who are trying to take serious the way of Jesus. We may not be the most influential voices in culture anymore, and yet we're still called to live faithfully. And so he describes digital Babylon as shaped by these three big forces, that we're in this culture where there's unlimited access. Uh, We have those lighted rectangles, I love how they say that, our phones in our pockets, these little computers with so much processing power, it was like unfathomable just decades ago. Uh, But we have it all the time with us, and there's free Wi-Fi most everywhere, and so you can jump on and you can access information and content, which can be a good thing, but it can also be a challenging thing uh, along the way, especially with the second dynamic, that many of us experience a profound feeling of alienation, that although we have more opportunities to connect with one another, we often feel lonelier than we ever have before, and studies show that loneliness is actually increasing as our connectedness, allegedly, uh, is also increasing. So that's this weird dynamic that's happening, and then you stack all of that on top of a constant challenge to authority that exists in our culture. Some of that's good, right? There have been challenges to authority that needed to be challenged as we've exposed injustices and we're pursuing uh, the right thing, but at the same time, there's kind of an undercurrent in the water right now Uh, just that questions lots of institutions and and authority figures and practices that have grounded people for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And what we believe here at Story is that's not necessarily good or bad, it just is. This is the cultural water that we're swimming in, and we don't want to combat culture, but that is really important for us to be aware of the culture in which we live and, and to try and discern and be wise in how we live faithfully in the midst of it. And uh, I said this last week, I'm gonna say this a couple of times today, but I think this topic is especially important if you care about the next generation. 
And I also think we should all care about the next generation, but that's a different topic for a different day. But if you're a parent or a grandparent or there's a young person in your life that you care about, man, we've got to pay attention to what's happening, especially on these digital platforms. And again, we're gonna talk about it more today, but the truth is the way that your kids and our students engage with these platforms and these devices is gonna happen, whether it's by default or by design. And we tend to not drift in good directions. Uh, the other thing that we said last week that I think is important to have in mind as we continue today is that our kids are often looking to us, not so much for our advice about how to use these devices and how to navigate this world that we live in, but for an example. That, that their habits are gonna be more caught than taught as it relates to how we're navigating digital Babylon. And so the stakes are really high and uh, last week, we just kind of did a really like high-level introduction to the idea that technology is impacting us. That technology isn't evil, right? There's a lot of redemptive and good uses of technology. I'm glad there's a microphone that's allowing you to hear me right now, and we have lights and like HVAC and all that good stuff. Like technology can be wonderful, but technology isn't everything either. Technology is not our savior. And in fact, that's what we talked about last week, that we need to be aware that technology is impacting us, but our digital technology was never designed, it wasn't made to satisfy our deepest longings. And often, we turn to these devices looking for things like belonging and connection and intimacy. And if you do that, if you're like me, time and time again, you'll find that they don't ultimately satisfy those needs. Because as we said last week, only your heavenly father can do that. And only a true, embodied, loving community can do that. But for where we're headed this week, um, sometimes I think as it relates to social media, if you're like me, maybe you've had a moment where you've asked this question and you've thought, how did we get here? Right? It seems like, at least for my life, like as I was growing up, there was no social media when I was a kid and then suddenly it was just like, bam, it's here. And then suddenly, like now, it's like, it's just like dominating so much of our time and our culture and our attention. And, and it's a little like, how did I end up in this space where like I'm spending all this time and, and it's a part of our lives. Um, I can remember when I was in college, I had some how did I get here moments. Uh, because I would serve at a student ministry late at night, and then we would go out after student ministry and hang out with friends. So it would be like one or two in the morning. I was driving from my church in Kokomo uh, back to Ball State. So Muncie, it's about an hour drive. It's a straight shot, thank God. But I can remember driving back like at one or two in the morning and, and like doing the drive apparently, but getting into my bed, laying down and being like, how did I get here? Have you ever done that? You don't have to raise your hand because that's kind of an embarrassing thing to admit, but I did it like weekly. I would drive and I'm like, thank God that everybody is safe because I was so sleepy or, or whatever. I just like apparently zoned out on the drive and I would get in bed and be like, wait, I guess I drove. Like, how did I get here? I decided that wasn't a healthy practice, so I don't do that anymore. Uh, but I think social media can feel like that in our lives, right? Like for the most part, uh, it's impacting us it's shaping and impacting our world, but sometimes it feels like it just suddenly happened to us. So just for fun, I want to give you a quick like, uh, history of the development of these platforms, and there will be a little bit of nostalgia wrapped in for some of us who grew up with these things. But uh, back in 1997, that guy on the upper right, AOL Instant Messenger, any Instant Messenger users here? Yeah, some of you. I asked some of our uh, tech volunteers who are still in high school, and they're like, yeah, no, I've never used that. But it was a big deal when I was growing up. You set your away message, right? And you could like use cool fonts and, and all that kind of stuff. It was one of the first platforms that allowed us to, uh, in real time, digitally communicate with one another. So it was a big deal in that way. Then in the year 2000, things got a little less wholesome 
and this platform came out that was called Hot or Not. I'm not going to ask you if you participated in Hot or Not because it's a little less wholesome, like I said, but it, it was this platform where you could upload a photo of yourself and then people would vote on whether or not you were hot or not. And uh, I think it still exists. I don't recommend that you check it out. Uh, but it, it was really one of the first kind of platform-based digital uh, environments that was created where people interacted on this uh, digital platform along the way. In 2003, our boy Tom uh, took it to the next level with MySpace. It was a place for friends. And it was the place where I think the selfie was kind of first introduced to the world as uh, all the middle school girls when I was growing up perfected like the duck lips selfie look for their profile picture where you had to get the angle right. Uh, there was a lot of music and a lot of like really moody emo backgrounds if you can remember at least again when I was growing up with MySpace. Uh, believe it or not, just a year later in 2004, the Facebook was launched. But at that time, it was called The Facebook, and it was for Harvard students only. And some of us probably can remember when you had to have a college login in order, uh, a college email in order to get a login access to Facebook. Um, in 2006, Twitter joined uh, the platform race, and uh, Twitter was actually initially based on text messaging. There was no app for Twitter. You just texted in a number, and that was how you tweeted. And then quickly, they racked up the bills and realized, we need to do this a, a different way. Uh, but things really turned a corner. I, I think the moment that uh, these platforms really started becoming a part of our everyday lives was in 2007, when the iPhone hit the market, when smartphones suddenly became readily available to us. And at the same time, in 2007, that was the year that the hashtag was introduced to social media. And the hashtag is the little pound symbol back in the day, remember? But now it's a hashtag, and it can be this way that we catalog information and connect with different topics. The hashtag has brought us uh, fun things like Throwback Thursday and YOLO, but it's also brought about significant changes in our world in the political environment. There was this uh, moment, again, in the late, uh, or early 2000s, I guess, uh, this moment called the Arab Spring, where people in the Middle East actually used these platforms for political uprisings. Uh, we've seen in more recent days things like Occupy Wall Street and Black Lives Matter and Me Too use hashtags to organize, and it's kind of a crazy thing to think about regardless of what you think about those movements. That's not what we're talking about today, but the hashtag kind of changed the game. Then in 2009, the scourge of the earth arrived with Farmville. Anybody remember that? If you, if you played Farmville, you're welcome here, okay? But we didn't want the invite. We kept getting the invite to like, will you play Farmville with me? And it's like, no, I don't. I used to block people if they would send me Farmville invites, like full disclosure. So uh, again, if you're here and you're a Farmviller, you're welcome. But uh, thankfully, we're past that now. In 2010, Instagram and Pinterest uh, joined the fray. And then if we fast forward a lot, in 2016, there was this another kind of profound change where streaming and live video suddenly became possible and became available for us. And now, in 2022, uh, these devices and these platforms are just a part of our lives. They're a part of the culture that we're in. Most of us, if not all of us, in some way engage with one of these platforms. But on average, I want to give you some stats about how many of us are using these and how often we're using it. The average person in the US has 6.7 social media accounts. That sounds kind of crazy, right? But when you start stacking it up, it's like, oh yeah, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, if you count email or whatever. Like, you can add them up pretty quickly, and uh, I don't think we often pay attention to how much we're investing in these platforms. Uh, in fact, the average time spent daily in the US on social media is two hours and three minutes a day. That might not sound super crazy to you until you do the math like I did this week and realize that's about 9% of your year. You're like almost tithing <laughs> your time to social media, if you want to think of it in that way. And just a reminder, again from last week, 
as I'm talking today about social media and the way that we navigate it together, that we can navigate it in a way that actually reflects the heart of Jesus, I want to remind you that I don't believe technology is evil or that it's our savior, but we have to know that it's not neutral. And we have to be mindful in how we engage in these platforms that are a part of our lives. And so as we're talking about this and the impact that these platforms can have on our lives, we're going to do a little like participation poll here today. There's not a right or a wrong answer, so don't feel nervous. But just by show of hands, I'm curious, like, how many of us believe that social media is making us more impatient? Do you, like, throw your hand up if you think these platforms are making us? Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I appreciate the honesty. It's good. Uh, what about unkind? Is social media making us, like, less kind or more unkind? Uh, what about envious? Are, are we more jealous of each other, compare more often? Okay, a few less of us, that's cool. Uh, boastful or proud? Like, is social media making us more proud along the way? Uh, what about dishonoring to one another? Is social me media making us, yeah, I thought that would be like all hands up. Maybe you're just getting tired because you're seeing what I'm doing here. But uh, is social media making us like self-seeking along the way? Yeah, I'll just rattle them off really quick. Easily angered, yeah, no doubt, right? Uh, canceling, like we're quick to dismiss one another. Uh, this one sounds intense. Does social media make us delight in evil? Here's, I'll talk about what I mean by that in a second. Does it make us ignore the truth? at times along the way, like remember fake news, that's kind of a thing. Uh, does it cause us to give up more easily? Anybody feel that or see that in somebody else's life? Does it cause us to doubt more readily? And this one sounds very intense, but have these platforms ever made you feel like we're just falling into despair? <laughs> like, like we're not very hopeful anymore? Yeah, so most of us, I think if you didn't get tired, we raised our hand for like most of those along the way, and it feels kind of depressing, doesn't it? Like that's not a fun list to look at and to see it all laid out like that. And I want to be really clear again, like I'm not anti-social media today. Like I'm on all the platforms <laughs> and uh, if you like find me on there, you'll probably find pictures of my daughter and like trippy landscape film photography that I'm trying to play with. But uh, to be honest, like I, I engage with this. I'm not perfect with what I'm going to talk about today at all. Like I'm a fellow learner on this topic and I want you to know that as far as my posture. But the reason that that list that we just talked through is a big deal is because scripture actually speaks to something that is the exact opposite of all of those things. And do you know what that something is? It's love. It's love. Love is the opposite of all of those postures that we talked about. And there's a passage that I'm actually going to spend all of our time on today uh, working through that is often heard at wedding ceremonies, but it's unfortunately rarely practiced in our everyday lives. It's uh, this beautiful picture the Apostle Paul wrote uh, describing the nature of love. And what I want to ask the question of all of us today as we examine ourselves is, are our social media habits, is the way that we engage with these platforms making us more loving or more fearful? And if we can just be honest and kind of self-assess today, I think it will help us figure out how to be wise in how we navigate this world that we live in. But the Apostle Paul wrote these famous words about the nature of love, and when he wrote them, he was actually writing to a culture that did not have digital technology, but wasn't all that different than some of the things that we see shaping our culture today. He was writing to Jesus' followers in Corinth, and Corinth at the time was a highly individualized, educated, sexualized, and industrialized culture. Again, not that different than the world that we live in. They were kind of booming. It was the place to be with Corinth. And here's how the Apostle Paul writes to this culture describing the nature of love. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. And it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. 
Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. And like I said, here's what I want to do today. For our purposes today, I want to speak to our cultural moment and these platforms that have sucked all of us in and talk about what it could look like for us to practice that kind of love in the real world and the digital world that we live in. And so what I'm going to do with the rest of our time as quickly as I possibly can is we're going to go rapid fire line by line through this description of love that the Apostle Paul says, and we're going to root it in the context of our current culture. And here's what I want you to do. Like, it might feel like you're drinking from a fire hydrant because I'm going to have to move pretty quick to get through this. But I want you to pay attention if one of these things sticks out to you and kind of convicts you or just grabs a hold of you as far as the way that you're engaging in these online platforms along the way. So you with me? Buckled in? Ready to go? Okay. Here's what the Apostle Paul would say. He would say, in a culture of instant gratification, love is patient. Right? We live in a culture where we want what we want and we want it now. Right? Patience is not an American virtue. And if you think that you're patient, ask your spouse about your driving, and you'll probably learn otherwise, right? Or at least I would learn otherwise. And, and when it comes to technology and, and these digital platforms, instant gratification is like the currency of social media. Right? It's why we like that little like button so much. It's why we like that little red dot that shows up on our phone that tells us we have a notification. It literally gives our brains a little hit of dopamine, which is the feel-good chemical, when we see that little symbol pop up. In fact, these platforms, I'm going to try and not nerd out too much as we're going as well, but these platforms actually made a design shift uh, a few years ago where the, uh, the Facebook little notification, it used to be blue, like their brand is. When they turned it to red, their engagement skyrocketed because it triggered something in our brains where we're like, that's important. I need to pay attention to it. And it fires that dopamine release in our brains. Where we're like, this is good. I need it. But the thing is, real relationships aren't like that. Right? Real relationships aren't instant. They're not microwavable along the way. It takes time to trust and to get to know people, to actually navigate through life. And if you navigate life with another person for any amount of time, you're likely going to bump into a moment of conflict along the way. It takes time to have meaningful connections. And it, here's the thing. Our relationships with people in the real world are meant to be founded for mutual support and connection, not for continuous rewards and gratification. But these devices can train us to think like we just need the next thing and we need it now, right? We need to check it. We need to, t to get that like. We need to get that attention along the way. And I think one way that we can define this idea of patience is it's learning how to wait, right? It's the art of learning how to wait. And for many of us in our relationships with one another, we've lost the way of doing that. So thing number one, the Apostle Paul would say, is in this culture of instant gratification that we live in, love practices the art of knowing how to wait. The next thing he says is that in a culture marked by cruelty, love is kind. And if you don't believe our world has become more cruel, you've never been in a comment section online, right? I mean, it gets mean so quick. You can be watching. I can remember, actually, a church that I was a part of. Uh, we did a Dave Matthews Band cover uh, just as fun at the start of this service. It kind of tied into the theme for that day. We posted it on YouTube. You have never seen a meaner group of people than Dave Matthews fans in the comment section on YouTube. It was like, this isn't Dave, you're terrible. And we're like, we're at church and we thought we were kind of creative and cool, but like, man, we got torn down quick and we can all tend to excel at this. We tend to excel at tearing one another down online because it's really easy to get brave behind a keyboard or behind a screen. It's really easy to just pop off and say something that we don't mean. And sometimes in our eagerness to make our point, we take a jab at the person along the way, and it's painful. 
It's painful if you've ever been on the receiving end of cruelty online. It's having a real effect on real people in our real world. On the opposite side, have you ever been the recipient of surprise kindness? Have you ever had somebody just show up in your life and they were kind to you and it wasn't deserved, it wasn't asked for, it wasn't expected, and they were just good? Doesn't that kind of experience just elevate you? I can remember uh, the first time around when we were in the process of launching this church, uh, there was a lady who was kind of a part of our launch team, but she lived in Kokomo and just helped for a season. And it was months after she had stopped serving with us. We really weren't connected all that much anymore. She just showed up at uh, my house one day and she had a like, $50 gift card and said like, hey, you're doing great work. Like We're still cheering you on and we just want you to take a night out and go enjoy it. And I was like floored. Like, we could have afforded the meal if we wanted to, but the fact that she thought of us, she showed up unexpectedly, and she just gave us this gift of kindness, it, was, it put wind in my sails to keep going as a leader, and it was so encouraging for me. Uh, they were barely even involved anymore, but they stepped in, and they appreciated us still along the way. And so here's my question, right? In a culture of cruelty, love is kind, and what if, for you and for me, as we engaged online, we viewed every instance of cruelty as an opportunity for us to practice kindness. Right? What if every time you saw one of those cruel comments online, you thought, I can be kind in this moment. I can change the conversation. I can step in and I can do something different, even to the people you disagree with or who you think are on the wrong side. That looks a lot like love. So patience and kindness, they're these kind of active uh, things that love is, Paul says. But Paul also goes on and he talks about what love is not. And he says, in a culture of comparison, love isn't envious. This is a huge deal, especially for our students. Again, these platforms have a tendency to fuel comparison between us, uh, especially like for students. If instant gratification is the currency of social media, comparison is the outcome. Comparison is the result where we're constantly checking how we stack up. And I'm talking about students, but the truth is we all do it, right? You want to have like the perfect Pinterest meal or, or the Facebook family that looks so amazing in your Christmas card or whatever it may be. You want to have like the Instagram worthy life that looks like a huge success. We all want to present our highlight reel on these platforms. And what it can lead to is us comparing our real life to somebody else's curated life to us becoming envious of other people. And I can remember uh, when I was a leader in student ministry, again at a previous church, there was a student who told me uh, that on Instagram, if they posted something and within a certain range of minutes, like I think it was under five minutes, if it hadn't gotten over 11 likes, she would take it down because it, it meant that it wasn't good enough. It wasn't like popular enough content. And A, I was like, really? Like people think about these platforms in this way? Because I was, I'm not like old, but I was kind of like, old to her, I guess, and like learning about these platforms. But she was like, oh yeah, all of my friends do it. Because at that time, the way that Instagram was designed, if you got over 11 likes, it didn't tell you how many other people were liking it anymore. But if you had under 11 likes, you saw the count, right? And you knew, oh, I didn't measure up. I wasn't good enough. See, envy is wanting what somebody else has. Envy is wanting what somebody else's life looks like or the things that they have. And maybe a good gut check for whether envy is like creeping into your life is to ask the question, does it bother you when you see somebody else doing well? Right? Does it bother you when you see somebody else's success? When you're scrolling through and you see their like perfectly curated home, are you like, well, yeah, they would. Right? Like that little bit of bitterness comes up in you. That means envy is creeping in. But love isn't envious. Love celebrates others rather than competing with them, rather than comparing with them. And so the Apostle Paul would say like, hey, there's a different way. 
that we don't have to get caught in this comparison trap, but rather love is not envious. Paul goes on to another thing that love is not, and I think he would say to us today in a culture of self-promotion, love isn't proud or boastful. I mean, these devices, right, these platforms, it's brought us the selfie, like the ultimate symbol of millennial narcissism is the selfie where we can show off how amazing we are to the world around us. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing inherently wrong with a good selfie, okay? You can take a selfie. I'm not like, if you post one, I'm not going to comment something mean because that would counter what I'm going to say in a little bit later. But the truth is all of us can tend to be a little self-focused in life and on these platforms. All of us can tend to turn inward along the way, and we can all be tempted to believe the lie that life is all about us. It's all about our needs getting met or, or our story or, or our desires being fulfilled. But what Paul would say, and I think what Jesus showed to us, is that life actually isn't about us. Life is actually about God and what he's up to, and it's his story that he's invited us to be a part of. He was there at the beginning, and then he made us and gave us a role to play along the way. And what that means for us is that life's not about making a big deal out of yourself that you don't have to prove yourself, you don't have to self-promote, you don't have to be proud or boastful about who you are and what you've done, but rather you can receive your identity from God, that God already calls you beloved just as you are, and so there's nothing to prove when it comes to God. But when it comes to our digital engagement, do your social platforms reflect that? Does the way that you engage online reflect that along the way? The next one I think is a big one for all of us, so we're gonna camp out here for just a second. Paul says, in a culture of disrespect, love isn't dishonorable. And did you notice, like, when we were doing the hands up thing, people were getting kind of tired, and then I said, like, social media dishonorable, boom, all the hands went up. Because we've all seen it happen. We've seen our culture and our world kind of take this mean shift, it seems like, along the way. And many of us are like, oh my gosh, how did this possibly happen? But I think one thing that's played a role is that in our engagements online, often, honor and respect are the very first things to go, right? Often, honor and respect for the other person that we're engaging with are the first thing to go because we can forget that the person on the other side of the screen is a person, not just an avatar or not just a point that we're trying to overcome and, and grind into the ground, right? We can be so quick to react and, and to be disrespectful and dishonorable along the way. And I think what's really important for us to get today is that the Jesus movement, the church, it started in a divided culture, much like ours is today. It started in a politically divided culture. Even within the church, there were divisions that were happening, and that's why you see the leaders of the church talking about division and unity all the time. There were specifically these two large groups, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile, or the non-Jewish Christians, and they were constantly battling and wrestling about what it looked like to be faithful and to include one another and to be kind to one another, and at different times in the story, they would each want to exclude each other and dishonor each other along the way, and in the midst of that tension, and I would say in the midst of ours today, the apostle Peter wrote these words, and he quite simply says, show proper respect to everyone. The important part is everyone right? Because we're good at showing proper respect to some people, people who look like us, think like us, people that we like, people that we think deserve it. But he says show proper respect to everyone because every person that you encounter, whether it's in person or online, is a person who is made in the image of God, a person who bears the divine spark within them. And so that means that you should respect even Republicans, right? You should respect even Democrats. You should respect people of a different race than you, 
a different political persuasion, a different sexual orientation, different music tastes, like you name it. Any of the things that we leverage to divide one another against each other, Peter says, hey, respect one another, always, right? Respect everyone, always along the way. And what I want you to get today is that it, I believe, man, I'm, I'm banking on the fact that it's possible for us to differ from one another without demonizing one another. It's possible for us to have differences and different perspectives and opinions without disrespecting and dishonoring one another. But online, it often doesn't look that way, does it? There's a better way that we can practice. But we'll keep going. In a culture of me first, Paul would say love isn't self-seeking. See, it's an echo of what he said earlier about not being boastful and not being proud. But I think sometimes we can be self-seeking by simply not paying attention to others as well. Right? We can hop on these platforms, we can use our digital life to promote or even just share about ourselves, but then when we see things that are affecting other people in the real world, we're just kind of numb to it or desensitized. We just move on. We use these platforms to seek our own gratification or our own attention or at best our own entertainment, but we don't use them to tend to the needs of others, to think about what's going on in other people's lives. And these digital platforms, like I said, they are not evil inherently. They can actually be used in redemptive ways. I'll tell you the truth. Facebook is a remarkable pastoral tool because <laughs> I can pop on and be like, what's going on in their life? Oh, yeah, cool. Things that, again, I'm showing my hand here a little bit. But like when you show up on Sunday, I can be like, hey, you did that thing on Friday, right? Because you posted about it. And it's this great like jumping off point for us to connect in a real way. But like what if for you and for me, we use these platforms in redemptive ways? What if you were others first with your social platforms, not me first along the way? Another biggie is what Paul says next. In a culture of outrage, love isn't easily angered. Man, we need to hear this one. I need to hear this one at times along the way. And I don't know if you know this, I'm gonna try and not get too nerdy again, but these platforms actually incentivize us to be outraged. Like, like they work and they run and they're fueled by moral outrage because Platforms like Facebook run on what's called an algorithm, which is something I don't fully understand, to be honest with you. But one thing I know is that they will present to us content that is heavily engaged with. And our brains are hardwired to engage with moral outrage. That's why when you see something that you think is morally outrageous, you can't help but feel it, right? like that feeling rises up in your chest. And sometimes you can't help but say it or do it or act on it because we're all wired to respond to things that, in our opinion, are morally outrageous. But these platforms leverage that because they want to generate ad dollars, right? And when we're outraged, we start clicking and we start sharing and they start getting more ad dollars and on and on and on it goes. And we don't even know that we're doing it, but we're getting pulled into this cycle where it is easier for us to be enraged about things than to be engaged in things, right? It's easier for us to be outraged about the state of our world, but do nothing on the solution side of being in our world. And Paul says, love is not easily angered. This might be one of the most countercultural tech-wise habits that you could develop is to be a person who is not easily angered. And I think we could do this if we practiced what James told some of the earliest followers of Jesus when he said this, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Like maybe that needs to be the background of your phone. Right? Maybe that needs like stuck on a sticky note on the monitor of your computer at work when you're like cheating time on Facebook and you're not supposed to do it. Just like put there like, hey, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. 
man, if we were people who did that, we would stick out like crazy on social media and in our real world as well. And it would be this taste of what it's supposed to be like if we actually lived the different way that we're called to live. Another one, in a cancel culture, love doesn't keep the score. Right? We, we've all heard this term show up in recent days that we live in a cancel culture, and the church isn't immune to this. In fact, we kind of perfected it, and then the culture grabbed onto it because we used to have like book-burning parties and then CD-burning parties, and we would cancel things left and right that we thought were morally outrageous. Whether that's right or wrong is a different topic for a different day. But now the culture, it's like in the water where we fall into these echo chambers, and if people don't agree with us or look like us or think the way that we think about a certain issue, we don't engage with them, we cancel them. We say that they ought to be removed from the conversation altogether and all along the way. And in a culture that wants to morally police and define who's in and who's out, Paul would say love doesn't play that game. Love doesn't keep the score. (laughs) I've been having this game night, I think I mentioned last week, uh, for every week, uh, for most of the past year. And we've played a couple of games along the way where the scoring is kind of tricky. I don't know if you've ever played one of these, like a card game. I think there was one that was like sushi-oriented that we played, but anyway. Uh, you played it, and like you, depending on your hand, at the end of the game, you calculated the score. And it was so frustrating for me because I like to win, and because it was like you didn't know exactly what everybody had in their hand until the end of the game. And so there was this like gotcha moment where I lost at the end of the game because my score wasn't as good as I thought that it was. Sometimes that's what our cancel culture can feel like. Right? Where there's this gotcha moment just waiting for all of us. Once you slip up the wrong way and you find out that the score was stacked against you and the scoreboard is right there showing everything that you've done wrong. And because of this, oftentimes we just back away and we disengage. But love doesn't keep the score. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And there is never a gotcha moment with love. We're called to be different along the way. This next one, I promise we're getting close to the end here. But this next one, I'm going to get a little bit wound up on. Okay, so track with me here. Paul says in a cynical culture, Love doesn't delight in evil. And delight in evil is one of those ones that we're like, I don't know, like, that sounds intense. Like, <laughs> I don't worship Satan, I'm in church today. Like, what do you mean delight in evil? Uh, but there was a line in that Digital Babylon video that started us off that you may have just glossed over, but man, I think it's so true in our world that we are in a culture that is weaponizing humor, making snarky cool and cynical smart. And I think in the same way that it's easy for us to disrespect people from behind a screen, it's easy for us to delight in evil from behind a screen. It's easy for us to see things that ought to actually outrage us and to find them funny, to laugh at things that should break our hearts. And I got a taste of this locally this past week, and this is why I'm going to rant for a little bit, okay? Because I, uh, I ran into a law enforcement officer who's a part of our school system, improved community schools, and we were just catching up. And he told me, uh, just, man, bullying is really a problem in our schools here. And uh, to be honest, I was eating dinner, and we were just kind of talking, and I was like, yeah, I believe that. Like, things are crazy. And then I kind of went back to my meal, and I just glossed over it, like many of us do, right? Like these platforms often lead us to do. I thought, that's bad. Someone should do something. (laughs) And then I went back to eating. And then on Sunday night, I was at student ministry, where I'm a small group leader, and uh, we were kind of winding down. We were getting ready to leave, and one of our students, which... I'm not picking on our students here, to be very crystal clear. Some of them are going to be here next service. So, like, I, I was, I'm not picking on them, but one of them was like, hey, check out this funny video. And it was a video of girls at Peru High School fighting physically. I mean, it was physical assault. They're just beating up on each other. And, and as disturbing as that was for me to see, I thought about showing it to you, honestly, but I don't need the shock factor. You can probably imagine. As disturbing as that was for me to see what was equally unsettling, was the reaction of our students seeing it because they thought it was hilarious. And these are good kids. 
These are kids who show up on Sunday nights to learn how to follow Jesus. And they were laughing at an assault on one of their peers. Like it was lighthearted and it was funny. And when I saw this, uh, they were even justifying it to some degree. Like, well, yeah, but like, did you hear what she said that caused the fight? Like we were justifying or delighting in evil. And when I saw it, I didn't blame them. I thought, oh no, we've taught them to be cynical like us, right? Oh no, that whole caught then taught thing, it's happening and it's impacting them because that should break their hearts. That should outrage them. And instead, they're laughing at it. And I don't know what to do about it, okay? I'm not like Mr. Solutions here today, but I was just so struck by it and I walked away like, we've got to do something about it. And to be honest, I talked to some parents about it and I got a similar reaction to how I reacted when I was in that restaurant. They're like, yeah, it's bad. What are we gonna do? What can we do? And like, truth-telling moment, friends, right? Adults in the room, that's really who I'm talking to. If we find broken things entertaining rather than heartbreaking, we are not living the way of love. We are not living the way that Jesus calls us to live. And broken things in our world, they should break us and they should move us to do something. And I know that if you're like me, we're often tempted to see these things and to think, well, that's just the way it is, right? That's just the way it is. But what I want you to get today as we're talking about being wise with these platforms and modeling a different way for the next generation, it's that things are the way that they are because of the way that we are, right? The way it is is because of the way that we are in this world and there's a better way that we can be. Rather than rejoicing in evil, we can practice love that looks different than that. But just a few more, okay? So hang with me. In a culture of misinformation, Paul would say love rejoices in the truth. We live in the era of fake news, don't we? And here's the thing. It's true on either side of the aisle. It's true on every issue. You can find misleading information about everything at any time online. And we can unknowingly get sucked into false ideas that are so dangerous for us. I mean, it's a hard thing for us to navigate. I thought about showing some funny examples just to lighten the mood. And then I thought, somebody's going to believe one of them. Right? Like, or somebody already does believe and I'm going to offend them. So I'm like, I'm not even going there. But we all know that it can be so easy to get trapped into being outraged, being wrapped into something that may or may not actually be factually true along the way. And every political party does it on every side of every issue. So I'm not picking on one side or the other here. But as I was thinking about this, uh, I was reminded of some of my friends in Rotary Club that meet here. I'm not a part of it. Uh, but I've attended a few meetings along the way, and there's something that the Rotary Club does at every single meeting that maybe us Jesus followers should start doing as well. They have what they call the four-way test about basically checking their own behavior. And the four-way test asks these four questions. It says, is it the truth? Is it fair to all concerned? Will it build goodwill and better friendships? And will it be beneficial to all concerned? And if it doesn't pass that test, their advice is don't do it. And I think for our social media habits, maybe we need to print this one out too. And, and before you hit that share or that like button, run it through the four-way test. Like not, does it feel like the truth or does it confirm what I already know? But like, do I factually know that this is true? And, and if the answer is no, stop there, okay? And, and if you keep going and, and it passes the test, then share away, my friends. But like, if it doesn't, man, what if this became our litmus test? before we posted and shared and just left a wake behind us that we may not even be aware of. Finally, a few more. Paul says, to a culture that tells us to give up, love always protects. This is another big one for the next generation. Uh, there was a study done by uh, the guy who wrote a book called The TechWise Family, and in it, it said that 21% of high-tech uh, users, 
so students who use technology, I believe his category was eight hours or more a day, there 21% of them would say that they've had suicidal thoughts versus 9% who use it four hours or less. So these devices are impacting us. And as people of love, our job is to protect our kids. Our job is to steward the lives that they have, right? Whether your kids or not. I think we have a responsibility to get this right. And if it's not a big deal to you, you're just not paying attention. And it's time for us as Jesus followers to pay attention to the world that we're handing to the next generation along the way. We have to be intentional in what we do with these platforms, if not for ourselves, to protect others. And then a couple more. In a culture that fuels our doubts, love always trusts. I want to turn us a little hopeful here for a second because I know that it's been kind of heavy here today. And it can be tempting for us to think like, again, this is the way that it is. This is crazy. What am I going to do? But I believe we can be people who trust that there's a better way. We can be people who trust God that, that doesn't, we can be people who don't give in to cynicism, but we can be people who believe that God is still on the move in the world and he wants to actually move through us. And so in the same way, in a culture that can lead us to despair, love always hopes. And if we want to be people of love, we've got to believe there's a better way. We've got to believe that we can navigate this together. We've got to believe that God wants to be in the equation and he wants to move again in us and through us. And if this feels heavy today, the last line might be a little bit of hope for me and for you because ultimately love always perseveres. Love always perseveres. We know how the end of the story goes, right? We know who wins at the end of the day and our job is to join him in that work right here and right now in the digital world that you and I live in. And so I've spent too much time talking about this really quickly as we wrap up, right? If something stood out to you, here's what I would tell you to do. Grab onto it this week. Pay attention to it this week and do something about it. If not for your sake, for the sake of the next generation and for the watching world that is following your example, that's getting a picture of what your heavenly father is like by the way that you carry yourself in this world, digitally or physically. And if you need a little help along the way, here's two things I think that we can do. One, all of us, we have to start here every single day. Remember your identity. Remember your identity. Like, like Jesus follower, if you're in the room today, you're not a Republican first. You're not a Democrat first. You're not a whatever you do for a living first. You're not married first. You're not a dad first. You're not a mom first. You're not any of the things, again, that we use to divide ourselves. That's not the first word God has about you. The first thing you are is his. And you can receive your identity from him and let that identity shape and form everything else. But we've got to remember that things like comparison and self-seeking and divisiveness have no place in God's kingdom that that stuff doesn't come from him. And so we've got to start remembering who he says that we are. And then secondly, what I think we can do, this is a little cheesy, but before we engage on these platforms, we got to remember to put on our spiritual clothes, right? Get dressed. And, and here's what I mean. Paul, in a different letter to an equally divisive culture, said this to Jesus followers. He said, therefore, clothe yourself, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, right? There's that identity piece. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Bottom line, from our kids to our neighbors, there is a watching world that is hungry for a better way to live in this culture. There are people who are hungry to believe that something else is possible, and we ought to be the ones who show them what love looks like in action. We ought to be the ones who show them the different way because that's exactly what Jesus did and that's exactly what he handed for us to carry right here, 
right now in Peru, Indiana. And so what if for you and me, we weren't mindless about how we engage in these things, but we were mindful and we chose to let our lives and even our habits online be motivated not by fear, but by love. Let me pray that that could be possible in your life these next few moments. God, I know, like I said, this is like drinking from a fire hydrant because there is so much happening in our world, but none of it is bigger than love. None of it is bigger than this thing that is at the very core of who you are. And so God, I just pray for my friends today who maybe are like, whoa, I'm glad we get a week off next week because that was a lot. Uh, Just help them have clarity around what their next step might be. If one of these areas stood out to them, help them be honest with themselves and help them be willing to make some changes in their habits that might help them better reflect you. God, specifically, as we've talked about uh, just bullying and, and this culture that we live in, God, help us to find the solution. Help us to commit to being different. Again, to showing what love looks like in action. And God, for all of us, again, just help make our next steps clear and help us give us the courage to actually take them. And God, we pray and ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in or near the Peru, Indiana area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. To find directions, service times, and information about our environments for kids, visit us at storyperu.com.